I matched in internal medicine. What does it take to get into the residency of your dreams when it seems like all the odds are stacked against you? Welcome to the Road to Residency podcast with your host, John Arshadi. This is the show where we break down inspiring personal journeys of passionate physicians who had the courage and the commitment to take purposeful action to achieve their goals and serve their communities. All right. Hello, champions, and welcome back to another episode of the Road to Residency podcast. My name is John Arshadi, and I'm here with a special guest today, Dr. Mohammed Bakri Amami. He's our first guest who had the U.S. as his second choice to do residency. Mohammed has a lot of accomplishments. He's done a lot of publications. He's currently doing research in Mayo Clinic. He's also had some experience in refugee camps, did a lot of volunteering. He matched into internal medicine this year at Albert Einstein, and he's going to tell you all about that. Without further ado, Mohammed, hello. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thank you very much, Sean. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Tell us a little bit about your story, how you got here. So basically, I'm originally from Syria, actually, but I lived most of my life in Dubai, in the UAE. I graduated from there and I did one year of postgraduate internship. And then I came here to Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, to do research in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology. In parallel to me being here in Rochester, I also applied for the residency in the same year and I applied for my step three. Thankfully, I passed my step three and I matched as well in Albert Einstein in internal medicine. So tell us why the U.S. was your second choice. This is a a kind of a funny story because during the period when I was studying for my step one exam, the previous administration issued a ban for Syrians that really barred all the Syrians from getting a visa to come into the U.S., And as devastating as that was, I did my step one and I did my step two, but really I had no idea that I would really end up actually in the U.S., especially that the previous administration didn't really look like they're going to change anything. So I was working really towards the U.K. I did my OET exam, which eventually I used for the step, funny enough. But when I did it, the intention was to go to the U.K. and do my plabs and continue with the story. But eventually I got my visa suddenly and the ECFMG implemented the OET and I suddenly was hit with the realization that I'm going to match in the US. Well, I'm glad it worked out that way. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Yeah. So let's rewind a little bit back to your medical school. I remember you telling me that you actually prepared for the steps while you were in medical school. How did that go? Right. So since my second year or third year, I would say, in my medical school, I had a lot of support in my university. People really walked through the path of the U.S. before. And these people were very, very helpful in directing not just me, but everyone from my university who was studying for the steps on, you know, where to study from, how to direct your resources to really fit into the U.S. educational system. When I used to study for my university exams, I used to study from materials that would really be helpful as well for the steps. So for pathology, for example, I would study from pathoma. For pharmacology, physiology, I would study from Kaplan. And the other important thing was that I started thinking about doing the steps really early. So I did my step one just after my third year, which is the end of the basic years in my university. And the step two, I did it after graduating so right after my clinical years. So I would say this is how my university really played the role in really the educational part or the studying part. The other role that my university played was introducing me to research. 
my university is really geared towards research and there is a lot of faculty there who are willing to teach and willing to introduce you to research. So I started with research very early in my second year and that was a very important part that played into me getting into Mayo Clinic eventually. So we actually have a lot of listeners who they're here in the States for the first time. They might not have done any research and they want to know how to get into it. What would you recommend to them? Where would they start? So everyone really starts from a certain point. And for me, the starting point was when one of my seniors introduced me to research. The first research that I did was lab work mainly. And there was no publication that came out of it. It was just the experience, the experience of working in the lab, of working on papers, of working on publications. The other thing was that the university itself really introduced us to data collection, data analysis, and these kind of things. But really everything that came after that was purely self-directed. I used to look up YouTube videos to learn more about data analysis, to work through my publications, to use them for my papers. You know, I had to learn the publication process from scratch with no particular mentoring or supervising, just advising from people who knew about the process. So for people who are really just starting, the first thing that I would suggest is find someone who has done something before. It doesn't have to be someone with a lot of publications, doesn't have to be someone with a lot of experience, just someone who had one or two publications so that they know how to start. As soon as you start, I think that everything else can come from yourself, from just self-directed learning. The easier types of research that people start with are case reports and community research, just because they are much easier than systematic reviews and these types of studies. So I would suggest for someone who is just starting, start small, have someone to advise you, learn by yourself. And as soon as you get on track to know what to, what to publish, how to publish, and where to publish, everything else just goes forward and very easy. How important do you think this research is for the mass process? So uh, there was a time when, when really high step scores, 250s and 260s would by itself just guarantee a matching seat in the US. I don't think this is the case anymore. I think that currently research by itself is a very, very, very important part in your application. Mm-hmm. And in all of my interviews, all of the interviews that I've been in and all of the interviews that my friends were in, we were always asked about our research, what publications we had and what did we exactly work in each of the publications. So mm-hmm. for anyone who is applying next year or the years after, I think the focus would be really much higher on research, especially with the step one being a pass or fail. Mm -hmm. So the other elements of your application are going to be important. So I would really urge people who are applying in the coming years to focus on research a bit and give it some time, you know. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. Is there a magic number that people should shoot for, magic number of publications? I think, again, the easy answer is the more, the better. One publication is better than nothing. Two publications are better than one. I wouldn't say there is a magic number, but usually people who have four or five publications are in a much better place than the other average people. That's what I noticed from the surrounding people around me. But eventually, like just having any publication and, and some, some research experience is very useful and helpful during the interviews and during the uh, application itself. So Mohammed, we discussed earlier that you had some experience at some refugee camps. Tell me a little bit about those. So I come from a Syrian background, you know, and we have a lot of Syrian refugees. So it was just 
it makes sense that I would have some experience with refugees. You know, you have the experience, you have the money, you have everything. It's just intuitive that you would go and, and help these people. So the first time that I got introduced into refugees work was when I was doing my elective training in Beirut and Lebanon. And there's a lot of refugees over there. So um, in parallel to my training there in the American University of Beirut, I would go on weekends. I would go sometimes after working hours, just go with uh, NGOs and basically institutions that do a lot of refugee work. I would go there and volunteer with these people. Mostly mm -hmm. it was medical volunteering, but sometimes also just general volunteering. Mm -hmm. Similarly, after I think two years in, in 2019, I went to Jordan and Jordan is also a very refugee rich country. And I volunteered for like about two weeks in refugee camps as well and in refugees cities, basically. The reason I did it, well, first, because it's, it's. I mean, these people don't have a lot of difficulties in getting and accessing healthcare. And I think it's very important that everyone who has the ability to go there and help should go there. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it helps with your character. That's, I mean, something that is obvious. It helps with your communication skills, with talking to people, networking with people, finding more doctors and, and uh, nurses around you who you would discuss these things with. And I think this is very important for your character. And mm -hmm. secondly, it's part of your application as well, your community work, your, your social work. How did you as a doctor really benefit the society with whatever you studied? What you have to keep in mind is that for, for every program, there are like 3,000, 4,000 people who are applying with very similar profiles, you know. Mm -hmm. And the only way that these programs are going to filter out and find who really is worthy of an interview is by looking at your application in general. Mm -hmm. Is your application just geared into education? Is it just doing the steps and just doing research and that's it? Or do you have mm -hmm. more interests? Are you an interesting person? Did you have experiences outside of med school? Mm -hmm. I think that these are very important and these were frequently discussed during my interviews. It always gives you something to talk about during the interviews. Mm -hmm. And I think that people should start doing that. You don't have to be with refugees, of course. <laughs> uh, it's preferable, of course. But right. doing any volunteering work at all is very, very important for yourself mm -hmm. and for your matching chances later on. For sure, for sure. And for those IMGs that don't know, in order to get into a U.S. medical school, you need a lot of universities require at least 100, 150 hours of volunteer work. So it is very important for residency as well. Let's talk about how did this COVID pandemic affect your overall application process? <laughs> We spoke earlier how my original plan was to go to the UK. And I think that the main reason that my visa was accepted to come to the US was because of COVID actually. So COVID in some ways has really helped my my case, you know, and I used to laugh with my friends to say that, you know, it took the US a global pandemic and three years to get me through the system. But I would say that COVID helped with my case. I know that a lot of people were affected by it. A lot of people were denied coming here. But I think for my particular case, it was really what got me into the U.S. because they needed researchers. And I basically was accepted in Mayo Clinic as a researcher. That, so that really helped with the process. So let's talk about the application process itself. For people who were applying next year in 2021 for the 2022 match, how many programs should they apply to? When should they start researching these programs? What do you recommend for them? 
the main factor here and the number of programs that you're going to apply to is how much research are you doing for each of these programs? I think that researching every single program is really important. I don't think that you should get a list and just apply to everything there. You know, I think that's a waste of money and really doesn't help because a lot of programs, for example, are no longer IMG friendly. A lot of programs no longer sponsor visa. Some programs are in places that you don't want to be. That's what I did. So what I did was I started really studying every program, at least I think two months before I really applied. And even that, some people told me is actually late. Some people really Mm -hmm. start even before that. There is no magical number. Personally, I applied to 160 programs, but I researched every single one of them. And I had to exclude a lot of programs that had something that I didn't like. They had, for example, they weren't sponsoring visa anymore, or they were in places that I I don't want to be. They were overly abusive. You know, a lot of factors that a lot of people would agree on that we wouldn't be there eventually. I had the list actually, and I ended up excluding like more than a hundred programs of them. And I ended up with 160 programs. So that's what I would suggest. People really research what they want to do and where do they want to be eventually. How much do you think personal statements and letters of recommendation weigh here? What would you suggest people to do? How would they go about making sure they have a good personal statement and strong letters? Right. So this question is like two parts. The first part is how important these two, the the letters of recommendation and the personal statement is. There is no one that can give you a clear cut answer, but the Mm -hmm. trend from what I heard from my friends and from people who are seniors who are currently in programs, it looks like, especially for the letters of recommendation, they're extremely important for many programs. That's basically for some programs, this is the way they differentiate between people who have similar scores or similar profiles. If they have also very good letters, they get invited. If they don't have good letters, then they don't get invited. So that's for their letter of recommendation. The personal statement is very controversial, but I know personally that some programs just depend on your personal statement to choose you for an interview. So my suggestion and everyone's suggestion is don't leave anything as a weak point in your profile. Max out your letters of recommendation. Try to get them from people who really matter and who would write strong letters that would really describe you as a person. And similarly for the personal statement. Now, how to write the personal statement? This this is like the $1 million question. You know, right. everyone scrambles before the match. Is my yeah. personal statement good? Where do I go with it? You know? What I did was basically I just reviewed the whole internet looking for personal statements for everything. There is a website. uh, There are many websites actually that provide previous personal statements of people who matched or people who actually went into the same process as well. Mm -hmm. And what I did was basically I read at least 100 or 200. I don't know how many, but I read a lot of personal statements just reading them, knowing the structure, how it works, what exactly I have to include Mm -hmm. and what to focus on, what not to focus on, these kinds of things. Once I had a clear idea what I want to write or the the structure of what I want to write, I started writing. And of course, it's very important that you start writing very early in the process because it's not like a thing that you're going to write in a night or in two days. It's something that you're going to write over and over and edit again and again and show it to people and people are going to edit it. So I think it took for me like 
two months, I think, of writing the personal statement by itself, getting recommendations from my friends, like what to edit, what's good to include, what's not good to include. And the funny thing is that people would tell you things about yourself that you never really realized. Like they were, one of my friends told me about one of my achievements that I didn't even think about or never really remembered. And I ended up including that in my personal statement. So it's yeah. very important first to start early and on your personal statement and second to edit it again and again and show it to a lot of people. Yeah, that's excellent advice. So let's talk about the interview process. This was the first year that we did virtual interviews. How was that for you? Was it a little bit strange or did it go well? I mean, obviously, it was very easy in terms of the logistics. You don't have to travel. You don't have to worry about the, the expenses. You don't have to worry about missing the interview or something. Yeah. It's all virtual. And I think that the programs this year, even with a short notice, they did a very good job. I think in most of my interviews, I never had a really an issue with logging in or talking to the faculty or talking to the residents. I really never had a problem. So for me, it was smooth and easy to go. The only problem for me was that I never really had the feeling of what exactly it feels to be in the hospital. And this is something that a lot of people before in previous years had the privilege of, you know, when you are in a hospital, you get the feel of, do you want to be in this place? Sometimes you would meet the, the nurses, you would meet the social workers, you would meet a lot of people and you would know, is this a good place to be in or not? Mm -hmm. This year, because it was virtual, it was limited to the faculty and the residents, which don't get me wrong, it will give you a good idea, but it's not mm -hmm. the full picture. But would I really like to do it again when I compare the expenses and the full picture? I would take the expenses and just do it all virtual, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did you do anything to prepare for these interviews or did you just kind of wing it? I definitely prepared for every single one of my interviews as if it's my only interview. And this is an advice for everyone, you know, mm -hmm. even if it's in a place like one of the hospitals that I interviewed at, I knew that I'm not ranking this hospital. It wasn't a good place to be. And compared to my other interviews, it felt like a little bit inferior, even though I researched the, the hospital from top to bottom, the faculty, what are their interests, the residents and where to go, the, the city, everything about the program and the city and the state. And I went to the interview really as if it's my only interview that I had and as if I'm going to match in this place. So for every program, I have like to sit at least for three, four hours just researching everything about the program and modifying my typical answers to fit that mm -hmm. program. So let's say it's a university program, I would focus my answers on the research part of my application. If it's a community program, I would focus more on my refugee or volunteering experiences, on my clinical experiences, my internship year. So depending on who am I interviewing with, I would really tailor my answers towards that. And I would always have the questions prepared beforehand and not only one question or two questions, I would prepare at least 10 or 15 questions because you would have an interview where they would ask you like two or three questions and the rest of the 20 minutes is just you asking them. They're like, mm -hmm. okay, do you have any more questions? And you would have to come up with answers for solid 20 minutes, you know? Yeah. So for every one of my interviews, that's what I did typically. That's where a lot of people get stuck on, you know, at the end when they say, okay, what questions do you have for us? You know, what type of questions should we ask? 
generally when I prepared my questions, I usually refrain from the cliched questions. You know, there are a lot of cliched questions like, what do you think is the best thing about the program? It's a very important question. Don't get me wrong, but it's not mm-hmm. tailored to the program. I might mm-hmm. ask this question, but I would, before I ask this question, I would give a proper introduction that, hey, I like this and this and this about your program, but I want to know from your perspective, what do you like about this program? So by this question, I'm telling the interviewer that, I know your program, I know your hospital, I'm interested in these things in your hospital, but I wanna know from your perspective, what do you like about this hospital? So personally for me, when I used to prepare my questions, I would prepare my questions based on interviews that I had. So I had an interview with the program director. I would ask typical questions that should be tailored to the program director. For example, where do you see the program going in the coming years? I've seen that these changes have been done two years ago. How do you feel the residents are taking these changes? I've seen that you converted to Epic system. I've seen that you converted to the night float. How do you feel about that? These types of questions for the program director. Then for the faculty, I would ask more questions that are tailored to the teaching experience. Like what teaching experience are we gonna have? What influence am I gonna have on the residents? Am I gonna have teaching sessions for medical students? These types of questions. And then the residents would be everything else. Everything that I didn't ask the faculty, I would ask the residents. Like what's the salary? What, where do you live? What do you do for fun? That's what I would ask the residents. And I have them all, like I always have them all in front of me so that Whenever I'm stuck, whenever I'm asked, hey, do you have any more questions? I would have everything in front of me just to ask this question. So I think it's an important part of the interview. And a lot of people agree on that. And I think that people should actually prepare them beforehand. Absolutely. You know, a lot of people say beggars can't be choosers, right? So if they think that they don't have good chances, they just blanket apply to maybe 200, 250 programs. Do you think that's a good approach? What are your thoughts on that? Well. Every program that you apply for is $26 and it's $26 of your hard earned money. So when you apply to a program that has, for example, a 0% IMGs over the past five years, it doesn't make any sense. They're not gonna take you. Like it's something that is historically proven that they're not gonna take you. It's just a waste of $26. And people like us, the IMGs, we generally have time to research every single program. And researching programs is is pretty easy. There are a lot of websites that would tell you exactly, is there any chance that this program is going to take you or not? Now, for people who have, let's say, low scores or weak profiles or not a lot of experience, yes, it's true that they have to apply to more programs, but I don't think it should be blindly. It should be after studying the lists and excluding the places that are absolutely are not going to take you. Like I would say, for example, and I've seen it before, like people applying to a place and later on realizing that this place does not sponsor visa. Why would you do that? That's that's just a loss of money, you know, but some people really take the easy road and just blindly apply to, to a lot of programs. I would say that, yes, if your profile is weak, yes, apply to more programs, but do it cleverly. Just research every program. And if you feel that you have a chance there, go for it and apply for it. Otherwise, don't waste your $26. So you apply to 160 programs, And uh, you mentioned Albert Einstein. How did it feel once you got that email? Right. It's something that comes after a long, long, long time. You know, you work for the steps, you work for research, you work on, on everything. And then suddenly you have this single email that changes your life. And I was with my supervisor here in Mayo Clinic when I received the email. He was actually distracting me because I was constantly looking up my email. 
waiting for this particular word, you know, you matched. And uh, as soon as I received that, it was just an overwhelming feeling. There's nothing that really tops this feeling that after right. four years of work, everything really paid off. And there are two days actually. So the first day I knew that I matched, I was with my supervisor here. The second day I was with my family and I opened the email and I saw that I matched at Albert Einstein. And yeah. I was very happy, you know, because it wasn't really clear where people are going to match. But eventually for me and for many of my friends, we matched at the places we really wanted. So that was very delightful. Mohammed, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. We hope to have you again. Do you have any last words for our audience? Well, thank you very much for this, John. When you look at my story, it looks like someone who was who had no chance, absolutely no chance of matching. But then in the blink of an eye, everything just changes. So for everyone who is having some difficulties, either coming to the States or doing an exam or studying for something or finding research, I think that eventually it will work out as, as long as you're working for it, working hard and giving it 100% of your time and of your efforts. And I think that if me and my friends and everyone that I know we match and a lot of people that I know from various backgrounds or with various profiles and scores and, and experiences. If all of us really matched, I think that everyone can match and have a, a good match, actually. You just have to work for it. Sometimes it takes time. If not this year, then next year. Exactly. Right? Don't give up. Don't give up. Right. Thanks a lot. And we hope to see you on next week's show. If you haven't already, please rate and review the podcast, share it with your friends and get this message out there because this is a time where a lot of people are skeptical and they're saying, I'm an older grad, I'm an IMG, I have trouble with the USMLEs, there's no way I can compete, what do I do? Well, we want to show you that there is hope. Actually, right now is the best time to match as an IMG. You know, our match rates have gone up from 48% in 2010 when I graduated medical school to 61% in the 2020 match. That's a significant jump. And as a matter of fact, more than 25% of the U.S. healthcare system is made up of international grads. So know that you can do it. You will do it. Just don't give up. And I hope to see you in the next episode.